Blog Talk Radio. you're joining us again today. Today we're going to be continuing forward with uh, just one of the most delectable topics for me, as those of you who listen with any regularity know, and that's the domain of neuroscience in general, but in particular, looking at the way this new burgeoning science, not absolutely new, but really breakthrough at this point in time, is showing us some of the power, if you will, of ancient techniques such as meditation and others that are awakening, opening up different aspects of our brain system from moving from our reptilian brain into our mammalian, into our prefrontal cortex. This is what could be described as one of the most exciting journeys known to man. And even though it looks like it only goes about six to eight inches, it's a moving forward in a way I like to describe from the reptilian to the prefrontal lobes farther than any journey by foot could possibly accomplish. So it's with that that we have invited Dr. Richard Davidson on, a neuropsychologist, professor of psychology and psychiatry at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Uh, Richie, as he's well known to be, uh, was named one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time Magazine in 2006 and also serves on the board of directors of the Mind and Life Institute, a group dedicated to promoting a dialogue between Western scientists and His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Richie has distinguished himself in many ways over the course of actually at this point a few decades. And uh, <clears throat> one of them is his uh, book called The Emotional Life of Your Brain, which he uh, co-authored with Sharon Begley, who's written for the Wall Street Journal and a lot of other, uh, a lot of other work. Uh, Richie has uh, made some real breakthroughs in the understanding of brain science and the role of the brain, especially in emotions. Uh, that is the subject of the book, which we'll be getting into momentarily. And also has just pioneered research when he was asked, as I understand, and I'll be asking him about this, to study the brains, if you will, of some of a certain bevy of Tibetan Buddhist monks to begin to understand the relationship of consciousness to the brain and this kind of deep meditative contemplative 
work and discipline on the brain and what shows up. So this will be the nature of our dialogue. And uh, Richie Davidson, I want to welcome you to A Better World. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. Absolutely. It's really a pleasure. Uh, you know, your your work is, you know, far and wide appreciated and, and respected. And reading your book is really interesting to uh witness the journey that you've been on because for many, many years you were one very unpopular guy in circles at Harvard where you were an undergraduate and elsewhere because no one wanted to have the dialogues you were engaging and curious about, i.e. the relationship of emotions to higher brain functions. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. That's that's absolutely true. It was very lonely for quite some time. Uh, in my early uh, years as a scientist, I was focused on uh, understanding the brain mechanisms that underlie emotion, and I was captivated by the observation that when we look around us and we look at people that we know, one of the things that is most striking is the diversity among people in how they respond to life's slings and arrows, how they respond mm-hmm. to emotional challenges. Some people... Uh, are just uh, amazingly resilient uh, and are able to cope very effectively with challenges and other people are much more vulnerable. And uh, when uh, stress uh, and adversity occur, they can decompensate rapidly. And uh, we're interested in what the underlying brain mechanisms are that are associated with those different patterns of emotional reactivity. And even more importantly, how can we nudge people Uh, in a healthier direction? How can we promote uh, increased resilience uh, and uh, enable people to more successfully uh, negotiate uh, their emotional surroundings? So uh, those were the questions that that motivated me and still very much motivate me today. Uh, And when we began to work on this, what, what became apparent early on is uh, that uh, the this was really started in the late 1970s. Um, the science of emotion in those days was quite primitive, and uh, emotions were for the most part relegated to subcortical structures, the structures um, that uh, sit below the cortex uh, mm-hmm. that were um, uh, not part of uh, the highest. Um, most evolved parts of our brain, and it became very clear that 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 was a um, simple-minded idea that just was plain wrong. Uh, And we now know that uh, areas of the brain that we once thought were exclusively the domain of um, rational thought uh, now play also an intimate role in uh, various kinds of emotional processes. And so uh, the brain doesn't respect this simple division between thought and feeling, uh, but rather they are intimately merged in the brain in uh, all kinds of important ways. And so uh, those were some of the early insights that um, uh, that uh, the uh, kind of party line was um, in need of some revision. Uh, and uh, that that was really where we began our search. So interesting. Uh, the whole idea of the brain distinguishing between 
a feeling slash emotion and a thought. Is there a way to describe uh, how the differences between these show up in, let's say, any of your measuring equipment, EEG or otherwise? Well, um, uh, using uh, MRI techniques, which provide much better spatial resolution than EEG, um, Mm -hmm. Uh, they give us a three-dimensional image of the brain, uh, we, can, uh, uh, we can tell a lot about what is going on, although there are important limitations to what we can say. Uh, and what we, the conclusion, kind of conclusion that we've been led to is that um, qualities of emotion uh, really infuse virtually everything that we do. There really isn't... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this idea of pure thought that somehow is uncontaminated by emotion. Um, yes, which is an ancient have... myth, by the way, like right. Immanuel Kant and others, the notion that there can be some notion of pure reason separate from emotion. We are clearly emotional creatures, and I don't think it's all reptilian-based. I think it's much more right. mammalian. I think it's, would you say? Exactly. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, even the economists have discovered this, that the classical yeah. rational models for economic decision-making behavior are inadequate. And um, right. that uh, uh, economists have been forced to take into account um, uh, various kinds of emotional preferences in how people make uh, important economic decisions. So there's an example of uh, what Truly. was once thought to be in the realm of pure rational thought that just uh, has that kind of perspective has completely crumbled in the face of uh, um, more careful analysis. Yeah, that's so interesting that you have been, you know, one of those who have been unearthing it. One of the other uh points, of course, of your book, uh, just to kind of uh, go into that for a moment is something I find really interesting, which is this whole idea, you could say, of uh, typology, typically, uh, what we would have as the original physical type of morphologies that would somehow describe a psychological and emotional style. Uh, And what we then have, like the endomorph and the ectomorph and the like. Then we, of course, have the Jungian typologies, which of uh, intellectual, emotional, feeling type, kinesthetic, intuitive, etc. And, of course, there are half a dozen others that the Enneagram is another somewhat more esoteric one, but certainly gained popularity. But you make a point in the book that these, while interesting, are not actually with a physiological correlate, but you have come up with a series of styles, six, I believe, that do. Yes. Could you right. speak about that? Sure. Uh, so the six styles that I describe in the book are styles that emerge from our neuroscientific understanding. Uh, uh, and the other um, uh, kinds of typologies of the sort that you mention uh, are um, potentially quite interesting, but none of those others uh, are based upon what we know about the brain. And uh, if we are going to develop uh, typologies uh, 
that ultimately are um, penetrating in uh, their um, explanation, uh, they need to be consistent with every level of analysis, including the brain. And so that's where we decided to start. Uh, and that's what is presented in the book. And so um, based upon really 30 years of neuroscientific research, uh, these were the six that emerged. Uh, and one, and I can very briefly describe the six, um, one, is, uh, one is what, what I call the resilience style, and it simply refers to the rapidity with which a person recovers from adversity. Uh, the mm. faster they recover from adversity, the more resilient they are. And we can, and all of these are rooted in specific um, uh, neural circuits that have been identified and that we've studied. So the first one is resilience. Uh, the second one uh, is uh, outlook. And um, outlook is in many ways the flip side of resilience, and it refers to the uh, extent to which a person savors positive emotion, the extent to which positive emotion persists. Uh, some people may have, for example, a very warm-hearted conversation with uh, their spouse or uh, a close friend uh, in the morning, and the question is, does that um, permeate their whole day, uh, or is it a fleeting uh, experience that dissipates very, very quickly? Uh, and people differ in the extent to which these kinds of positive affects are savored. And we understand quite a lot about the brain mechanisms that underlie this. And we know that patients with uh, clinical depression uh, are unable to sustain these kinds of positive emotions. Um, a third dimension is social intuition. But would you say that the person who is the outlook type would be able to sustain Yes, someone who is high on that dimension is someone who sustains yeah. their positive affect. Yeah. Uh, social intuition. Start in a good third. mood, end in a good mood. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, social intuition is a third dimension, and it refers to how uh, accurate a person is in decoding the social nonverbal signals of another. Uh, if we are to... Um, express empathy and compassion for others, uh, the first step of that is being able to actually understand what another person is experiencing uh, emotionally, and we do that by uh, decoding the nonverbal signals that um, uh, give uh, information about uh, a person's emotional state facial expression, body posture, vocal expression. And again, sure. uh, there are big differences among people in how accurate they are, and we understand quite a bit about the neural circuits that are um, responsible for this. So that's the third dimension. So interesting. Fourth, in other words, I'm nodding now and I'm winking. Do you see me? <laughs> absolutely. I'm just playing with you. <laughs> right. <Yeah>. <laughs> there <laughs> we go. You're an empath, clearly. <laughs> yes, please. Uh, so the, the fourth dimension is we call self-awareness. Uh, and self-awareness is how accurate you are in decoding the internal bodily signals in, of emotion in yourself. So when we experience emotion, our body changes. There are all kinds of activity which occur in our skeletal musculature, in our breathing, in our autonomic nervous system. 
there's just a, a whole cacophony of uh, events mm. which transpire, and some people are very, very sensitive to these events, and other people are oblivious. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, that's a very important uh, difference among people. And it turns out that in order to be empathic with others, you need to have at least some level of uh, social intuition, of, excuse me, of self-awareness. Self-awareness, uh, yourself. Yeah. Self-awareness, yeah. right. So um, the fifth dimension we call sensitivity to context. Uh, and uh, what this is about is being able to modulate your emotional responses in a context-appropriate way. How you behave toward your spouse presumably is very different than how you interact with your boss, um, how you respond in an environment that clearly is safe and secure would be very different than how you would respond in an environment which is highly novel and unfamiliar and potential, potentially yeah. uh, threatening. Uh, so uh, we've learned a lot about uh, this style by studying individuals who show abnormalities in their ability to uh, appreciate context. And the um, primary disorder of context is post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, mm-hmm. In post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, a person can experience, for example, they can be walking in a very safe neighborhood here in the United States, uh, and uh, an ambulance might go by with a siren uh, whirring, and they may have a panic attack when they hear the siren uh, because they it, it triggers a flood of emotional responses that may have been associated with a prior traumatic experience. Uh, they mm-hmm. do not they do not distinguish the safe context that they're in from the earlier traumatic context that uh, their post-traumatic stress symptoms may have um, first been learned in, first have been uh, uh, elicited. Initially programmed. Exactly. And we've learned, again, a lot about the brain mechanisms that underlie this. The hippocampus is an area of the brain that plays an extremely important role in context processing. Um, Mm -hmm. And people vary in how, how accurate or inaccurate they are in this. So that's the fifth style. And the sixth style uh, is attention. And um, there are many different dimensions of attention, but the one that I emphasize in uh, my book is one that is related to how focused or scattered a person's attention is. Um, People very So it's a measure of coherency, if you will. Yes, um, very much so. Is that a fair way Uh, of understanding your point? Well, uh, you know, part of it depends on exactly what you mean by coherency, but um, we all have had the experience of uh, turning the pages of a book uh, and um, uh, seemingly reading the book, and after turning two or three pages, having absolutely no idea what we just read, uh, our minds are elsewhere. Uh, And uh, that's uh, being unfocused. It's uh, having one's mind wandering. And... um, uh, it turns discursive out discursive thought, very, as it's called in the traditions. Discursive thoughts, but being um, hijacked by discursive thoughts, particularly. Yes. Uh, so you yes. can be aware of discursive thoughts and, and have focused attention on discursive thoughts. So it's not discursive thoughts per se, but it's one's relationship to discursive thoughts. Yes. Um, 
So because uh, one's attention is moved away from what was said to be the object at hand. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And again, people vary in this dimension. We understand something about the neural basis of this dimension. And one of the things that's important to say about all six of these dimensions is that the circuits that underlie them in the brain are all plastic. Uh, that mm-hmm. is, exhibit plasticity, which means that they can be initially shaped by our experience and they can be trained through particular kinds of practices. Uh, and this is where meditation comes in because there are different meditation practices that can be used uh, that can actually alter these circuits in ways that are potentially um, uh, uh, um, uh, well-being promoting. That is, they can be adaptive and they can uh, steer a person toward more uh, healthy uh, emotional responses that uh, underlie our well-being. This is a beautiful, um, really, laying out of, uh, you know, let's call them neurological, neurotypes, if you will. You know, Mm -hmm. it really is. And uh, I I feel um, a relationship. I mean, I imagine that everyone has what they would consider their predominant um, neurotype. But as I'm watching all of those that you've laid out here, Richie, I, I feel guilty related to all of them. Well, it's important to emphasize that each person has all six, uh, and what we vary on is um, not which is dominant, but where we fall on each of these six dimensions. Yeah, on a scale. Exactly, but we all vary in where we fall on these dimensions. Do you have some form of test? Do you have some form of testing that would help people assess? where they are in, in such we a do. feeling? We in, do. In, in the book, in my book, The Emotional Life of Your Brain, we present uh, simple tests that a person can take to assess where she or he falls on each of these six dimensions. Got it. Got it. That's wonderful. That's clearly a chapter I didn't get to. My apologies. But I'm going to be focusing. Do you find, here we go about attention, right? Uh do you find that uh, these respective typologies, neurotypes, better, uh, occupy certain specific geographical regions of the brain and uh, others and some and others and others? Yeah, so to some extent they, they do separate uh, uh, in terms of where they're located in the brain, but it's not as if a type is located in just one area. Uh, They often involve interactions among different um, regions of the brain. And so that's why we prefer to talk about circuits. Um, Circuits represent uh, multiple regions that are interacting together. uh, And there Mm -hmm. may be some overlap in a given region shared among different circuits. But based upon patterns of connections, it's really the connections to different regions that are of most importance. I understand. Sure. No, I I get the message. So when you uh, have examined meditation as a generic type of technique relative to increasing resilience, outlook, sensitivity, uh, social readiness and dynamics, et cetera, et cetera, what have you found? What technique 
if you could describe it that way, has shown the highest results? Well, uh, we can't really how, that how would you question frame that quite, quite that in the question. way framed. Yeah, so um, uh, as uh, I'm sure many listeners know from their own experience with different uh, meditation traditions, there are literally hundreds of different kinds of meditation practices. Sometimes in the West, we treat meditation as if it were one thing. It would one be like big thing, right? That, it would be like thinking of sports as if there were just one kind of sports. Um, uh, we all Good know analogy. That, yes. that there's huge diversity. And so there are many yeah. different kinds of meditation practices. And uh, there are practices which we think may be particularly helpful in cultivating outlook, other practices which may be helpful in cultivating resilience, uh, still other practices which may be helpful in cultivating self-awareness, others for attention. Uh, and so there's a whole multiplicity of practices. Surely. And, uh, I can one see that the... now. I'm reviewing different methods uh, and traditions as you're speaking. And I can see, for yeah. instance, Vipassana seems like for self-awareness would be a, a fine technique to become self-aware in both mind-body speech, of course, and, well, one's physical awareness of place as an example yeah yeah, yeah. and, and attention the there are so many different types of practices where from so, focusing so on yeah. let's say the dantian the center in the chinese view or you know uh the hara or even the old-fashioned candle you know where you focus yes. on an object absolutely. Uh, absolutely is that what you think yeah absolutely Absolutely. And then for uh, the outlook style, uh, in terms of savoring positive affect, there are specific practices that um, we can think of as constructive practices that, that um, involve the explicit uh, attempt to foster particular kinds of positive emotional states like loving kindness and compassion. Uh, yes. And that could be very helpful in Right. Um, the Tong practices of the Tibetans, yes. for instance, exactly. The yes. Bodhisattva yeah. practices, yeah. We are speaking with Dr. Richard Davidson, the author of The Emotional Life of Your Brain, along with Sharon Begley, and uh, <clears throat> neuropsychologist working out of University of Wisconsin-Madison, who's been doing some real groundbreaking work uh, with the interface of meditation, as we're speaking about right now, with the brain and how meditation shows up, and in particular, related to these Six neurotypes. Do you call them neurotypes, or is that just me? Uh, well, uh, it's a good term. You know, I've used terms like neurotype or neurophenotype. Um, sure. Uh, so uh, it's certainly appropriate. Right. Yeah. I'm in the ballpark. I just made it up for the purposes of this interview. So you know. That's good. <laughs> It can be of help, sure. And you're listening, by the way, to Mitchell J. Rabin here on A Better World Radio. We're on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. on Blog Talk Radio, and our website is www.abetterworld.tv, where we uh, offer a free newsletter, a Better World newsletter, every week describing the uh, radio shows on Blog Talk Radio, on Progressive Radio Network, Gary Null, and on uh, Community Cable Access Television, A Better World, every Monday night. So uh, 
please join our newsletter and become part of a better world uh, community. So, Richie, please carry on. I'm, I'm particularly interested, if you could please speak to this. I, having studied meditation for many years myself, practiced it from the ripe old age of 14, frankly, when I started yoga and then came across TM like a lot of us young hippies did back then and also as a psychotherapist but transpersonal in nature. Uh, I've always been interested in looking at how we move from a, from a beta state into a more coherent alpha, theta, and even delta states. <clears throat> then it showed, and, and so I, I've always had it mapped that sort of the deeper we go and the lower hertz level that we attain and to be able to remain awake, conscious, and coherent is a measure of our uh, sort of um, evolutionary advancement. And then you came along with this sort of discovery, and please correct me if I, I don't have this right, of of the gamma wave, which looks like it's occupying a space somewhere north of beta. But that that is showing up in the Tibetan monks that you've been studying, and no doubt others. So how it seemed like it's in the opposite direction than I might have supposed based on my original programming. And I'd love to hear how you, how do you relate this to people like myself the, the, who had the, ori the, older the original idea. programming was based on antiquated ideas uh, and is okay. just simply, it's excessively simplistic and, and frankly yes. uh, inaccurate. Um, yes. So uh, uh, the practices that we've been studying in these adept uh, Tibetan meditators are practices that are uh, designed in the tradition they, they talk about the, um, being designed for awakening. Uh, and um, uh, the uh, the finding that you're referring to is a finding uh, 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 in, indeed with gamma oscillations, which are very high-frequency um, oscillations in roughly the 40 cycle per second range. And mm -hmm. um, these oscillations are associated in hardness neuroscientific research with synaptic plasticity, uh, and with learning, uh, and also with um, uh, with um, uh, integration of um, multiple elements together in a unified percept, uh, what we call perceptual binding. Um, mm. uh, and uh, uh, what was particularly interesting about the gamma oscillation finding was uh, the extent to which these oscillations become highly synchronized across widespread regions of the brain uh, that um, occur during these states of meditation. And these are um, types of meditation that we call open monitoring or open presence, where there is no um, uh, attempt to uh, uh, focus the mind on any specific object, but rather... Uh, the mind is just completely open and receptive to whatever arises. Uh, mm. Think about this sort of like a, a Zogchen perspective. Yes, it's uh, definitely open sky. Uh, open sky, and and a metaphor that would be an apt metaphor is that in this um, in this kind of state, the mind is like a very very still lake, and. Um, uh, we know that if we 
go to a still lake and, for example, throw a pebble into the lake, we'd be able to see very clearly the ripples from that pebble uh, across the opposite shore because it would be so still. Uh, And the mind in, 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 in this case is just utterly still and is available to represent whatever might arise. Uh, and so the background noise is reduced and um, uh, the mind is very receptive and there is um, a, a decrease in filtering, if you will. So whatever mm-hmm. arises from external or internal sources uh, can be um, very um, uh, clearly represented with great clarity and luminosity, as they say in the tradition. Yes, exactly. You're using all of the ancient images as well, which I appreciate. It's reminding me also, uh, at the same time of Aldous Huxley's The Doors of Perception, when you said filters removed, which would mean that there would be more sensory stimuli being admitted through the gates, the sensory gates, and able to be processed, I'm gathering. Yes. uh, uh, Certainly, um, that would be consistent with the reports in the tradition, and there's some hard-nosed neuroscientific evidence that supports that as well. Very interesting. So when you say across the brain, uh, of course, it gives rise to a notion, Richie, of uh, of holistic thinking, of holistic whole brain activity. That's what comes to mind as you're speaking. So would that then in, include the varying layers of the brain as well as going all the way back to having this kind of effect on the on the brainstem as well? Uh, we can't say that with any certainty at this point in time. The gamma oscillations are cortical in origin, uh, and so we don't really know what is happening in um, uh, uh, in more uh, inferior or uh, subcortical and brainstem layers. Uh, mm-hmm. The um, that still is something very much. Um, uh, a target of, of investigation. Yes. Yes. And do you consider it a worthy one? Sure. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you look at our world and you see a world uh, hugely of chaos and conflict where wars rage and greed abounds and the like, leading us down some very, very precarious paths, as a, as a planet, uh, and I mean, my assessment, and please weigh in here, is that it's essentially a reptilian world. It's a fear-based fight and flight and uh, greed, and I don't have any physiological basis to this comment, but <clears throat> greed is a function of that. Maybe that's more of a psychoanalytic perspective, but that greed grows out of a fear of not having enough to maintain survival and it's been unfortunately dignified and has become the norm so it appears to be okay in our daily society but when you look at the real after effects you know it's it's a complete disaster and in my worldview it's a profound pathology but uh 
opening up the possibility for the higher brain development, which, of course, is where the spiritual traditions, the meditative traditions, something I myself have come across is something called the release technique, which reminds me of sort of the open sky notion of always, and one of your neurophenotypes, of letting go where there's such resilience because there's nothing, you're not holding on to some form of... uh, there's no clutching or minimize, I should say, and there's mm-hmm. no um, identity with the thing, whatever it is, either a, a physical thing or a mental thing or like. And I've also come across something called and been studying something called higher brain living, which has, you know, it's a very interesting technique, which has another effect of seemingly really going into, measurably, I should say, the prefrontal cortex and creating some of the resilience that at least that type has in your in your um, neurotypes as well. Um, mm-hmm. Are you coming across any kind of psychological Western-based <clears throat> types of techniques that are, because these seem to be emulating some of what we're seeing in the in the Eastern techniques. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Pardon the generalizations, yeah. but I think you know where I'm going. Yeah, I mean, to understand. Asking, yeah. Go ahead. Well, if, if you're asking about uh, other non, um, uh, t- well, other techniques that come that that come from. Uh, um, Western scientific sources or sources other than the ancient contemplative traditions, I certainly think that there, there are going to be um, many that I think will turn out to be useful. Uh, so, um, you know, our goal is to uh, find uh, the best available tools to help promote well-being and to help promote virtuous qualities of mind, whatever those yes. things are. Uh, yes. And, um, uh, we do think that there is a lot of um, richness in these ancient contemplative traditions, but we're also um, very much uh, interested in supplementing them with whatever we can um, yes. from uh, from the modern culture that may be helpful. We're doing work with kids where we're um, interested in promoting these qualities in kids, and one of the things we're doing mm. is actually creating yeah. video games. We have a video game that we've developed to cultivate mindfulness and another video game that we've developed to cultivate uh, empathy and compassion and oh, social behavior, beautiful. kindness. Beautiful. Uh, and we think we can use these methods to do that, which yeah. really are um, out-of-the-box ways of, uh, of doing this that are very different than the contemplative traditions, but... Um, draw upon some of the insights from them, but uh, uh, use the um, uh, methods that are available in our culture today. Understand? <clears throat> it's very interesting. I, I mean, I studied. You're reminding me of a some work that Robert Diltz of neurolinguistic programming had come up with some software programs back in the early 80s when I was studying NLP with him and Ericksonian hypnotherapy with him and Richard Bandler, founder, one of the founders of uh, Mm -hmm. NLP. Mm -hmm. And he was playing with some of these back then and uh, Mm -hmm. in different ways, not exactly, but he was playing with attention and you almost like brain gym kinds of activities in order to cultivate different uh, virtuous aspects of a human. You know, beautiful, yeah. Yeah. beautiful stuff. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, I'm really glad that you're interested in that domain as well, because I think many of us uh, over the course of time have come to, you know, cast our eye to the East because they've developed spiritually and in a way that is really so impressive and quietness of mind and reduced reactivity and the like. And uh, the development of virtues is just central to Buddhist Mm -hmm. psychology and science. Uh, Mm -hmm. And yet with, I think the, uh, the flourishing of neuroscience largely in the West that is giving rise to some highly creative, imaginative new techniques, like a few that I've mentioned. You know, uh, Lester Levinson was a physicist and an engineer from our old hometown, the Big Apple here, who, you know, founded upon, stumbled across a technique of, he didn't think of it that way, just started this process of releasing and letting go of emotions mm-hmm. and physically decontracting his body. And before mm-hmm. you know it, he was, uh, you know, con- sort of like an Eckhart Tolle of the early 1950s. You know, right. uh, Dr. Michael Cotton has done something similar uh, related to this notion of touching certain points with a very gentle contact along the spine, especially, and mm-hmm. eliciting uh, higher brain functions as well. It's like, mm-hmm. how did this happen? You know, who's yeah. connected mm-hmm. the dots here? You know, but these kinds of things are showing up on the on the screen, so to speak. Sort of like what you're saying with video games, sort of using the best of technology. Some say that, you know, the the spiritual development in the East almost got a little frozen. You know, it's sort of like we came up with a great idea a thousand years ago and we're just repeating it. That's another interesting perspective that I learned from a Zen teacher, you know. Why don't we come up Mm -hmm. with some new ideas in the domain of spiritual modalities or technology? So, your thoughts. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm gathering that you're very onto this. Yeah, well, you know, we're, again... um, uh, we're interested in whatever might work and we're interested in using science to evaluate it. So um, uh, there's a lot of um, promise out there. There's also a lot of hype. And um, I think that uh, uh, by um, retaining uh, a rigorous scientific approach, we can sit yes. and we know among what's out there and um, uh, allow people to make more informed decisions about uh um, practices that may really be beneficial. Absolutely, absolutely. I know that you're short on time today, and this is a, a dialogue I would love to be able to continue because I'd love to take a peek under the tent, so to speak, of what your latest cutting-edge um, research uh, has been consisting of. Could you at least give us a little taste that maybe we can pick up again on another occasion? Well, uh, we... Um uh, we do uh, lots of different kinds of work in our center, and some of the most exciting new developments include uh, the study of changes in gene expression with meditation, uh, where we're literally mm. finding that um, we can uh, observe changes in the expression of specific genes that can be altered over the course of just eight hours of practice. Uh, And Mm. so the uh, kind of plasticity that we and others have characterized in the brain 
uh, also seems to um, be present in the genome where we can influence the extent to which particular genes are turned on and turned off uh, through intentional mental training. Um, oh, and, that's uh, beautiful. And that's uh, the first very much in the domain of uh, cellular biologist Dr. Bruce Lipton, who's a good friend of mine. I actually interviewed him back in the early 90s when very few people knew about him, but the domain of epigenetics is uh, right, exactly. Is what I'm yeah. hearing you talk about. Yes, yeah. So, uh, that is so awesome. there's uh, just, a, just a wealth of uh, exciting opportunities out there. Would you say that the work that you have come upon or the discoveries you've made, Richie, regarding gamma wave activity in the Buddhist monks is among just one of the most kind of uh, distinct discoveries you have made? Well, I'd prefer to leave that to, for other people to evaluate. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but from your point of view, from your seat, where you began with all of this, um, so is, it, is it, you know, the Dalai Lama did engage you? It's a very you. important discovery for us, yes. It was a very important discovery, and I think... You feel uh, it is, yeah. Uh, it, it was uh, that that was first published in 2004, and I think that was a very key paper. It was published in a very very high profile scientific journal, and uh, uh, it really initiated a flood of new research in this area because um, serious yeah. neuroscientists, uh, when they saw that, I think they realized that there was a there there. Uh, and uh, I think for, for many serious scientists, that was the first real evidence that um, there is something interesting going on in the brain. Yes, I hear you. I'm, I'm so pleased to hear what you're doing now with the effect of meditation and no doubt other practices of similar ilk on the genome. I mean, that's just, it just opens, it makes uh, what used to be thought of as a one-way monologue into a two-way dialogue absolutely yes very you know much that's a good way to put it awesome yeah thank you and you know that for me you stood on its head no pun intended here <clears throat> this notion of accessing alpha theta and maybe even upper delta as a direction to go in for one's let's say spiritual prowess contemplative prowess but it's actually in the super realm super beta if you will that you're yeah. really pointing yeah. fingers to so right. i'm grateful thank you i'm gonna to have to really think about that and meditate on that so you are most welcome. thank you very much absolutely okay great to richard talk davidson you. really great thank you so much and we'll uh well i'll be in touch with your people and them with mine and uh we'll have you on again when we can arrange it very good. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank bye you. Bye. Thanks so much for your good work. Bye-bye. You're most welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Dr. Richard Davidson, the author of The Emotional Life of Your Brain, with Sharon Begley, as I've mentioned before. What a gentleman and uh, a man doing real pioneering research into this, <clears throat> what is sometimes called the last frontier. I don't really think it is the last. I think opening it up becomes uh, sort of closer to the first when we start entering new dimensions that I think will become available to us as we peel back the layers 
of the higher brain, and it's just really interesting, the work he's doing. And I think it's important also to realize that he began with both an intuition and an intellectual curiosity. The intuition said that I think the higher brain functions are related to the emotions. There's some intimate relationship there that standard neuroscience back in the 70s was not acknowledging. They had some of their own, what we can say now is mythical hierarchy of where certain experiences, human experiences lie in the brain. And it sounds like, and I would love to be able to further develop this with Richie and understand from his work, uh, whether it was thought that our emotional lives were really wrapped up in the mammalian slash limbic brain. Uh, that, of course, was a huge evolutionary development for humans to go from the kind of cold-blooded, in my perhaps basic neurological, neurophysiological understanding, reptilian brain, which is highly reactive, completely dedicated toward survival, moment to moment, not just day to day. No, no, no. We live moment to moment. And to uh, refer to a classic Buddhist notion, since that was uh, peppering our dialogue today with Dr. Richard Davidson, uh, clearly, uh, is this idea that reality actually occurs in flashes. Moment to moment, the world is rebirthed, yet our brain and our perception perceives the connectedness of one moment to another, tying them sequentially one after the next. But they are, in fact, their own distinct big bang. Fun, huh? A fun thought. Scary on one hand, because, hey, where's the continuity? The continuity, my friends, according to this notion, is in our perception, therefore then in our belief system. Now, that would be a whole other uh, chapter. That would be a ball to be able to discuss with Richard um, of unearthing the neurological profile of belief. Uh, perception, I think, is probably a little... Um, more available, but belief is, you could say, a codified set of perceptions that, you know, become uh, the basis of a psychology, and uh, if not an ontology. So knowing the building blocks, and uh, as Ken Wilber would call them, the holons of construction of experience and our way of seeing and understanding an image that was given to me many years continues to go inform me, which is, do you know the old Nickelodeon um, uh, boxes where you'd put in a nickel? And I've used these. I've seen these. Where I grew up in Westport, Connecticut, there was something called the old ice cream parlor. And there was a true old-fashioned ice cream parlor that had a bunch of those machines, and you'd put well, maybe it was a dime because of inflation, in, and then you would turn, clockwise turn, uh, you know, a a wheel kind of thing, and 
it would flip the cards of what is like a movie, but they're in card form, almost like index forms, uh, cards with images. And when you went slowly, like a film projector, an old-fashioned film projector moving slowly, which I used to operate, you would see that each card was its own world, its own life, its own image of reality. And in between was darkness, black, nothingness. And then when you went faster, you would see how all of the images from the index card type of things were connected with each other. But each one was its own distinct momentary reality. You with me? And then our brain connects them all by speeding up the movement of the hand on the wheel so they all appear connected. It's absolutely the same as looking at frames per second in a film. And if you've ever been involved in video or film, which of course I've been and am, you get to see it frame by frame. And that, my friends, is understood in classic Buddhist thought as a much more accurate picturing, no pun intended, of reality. So when you slow the mind down, which includes slowing the brain down, like he was saying, to a still lake, I think the classic image is, a placid lake, a tranquil lake is the same idea, of course. <clears throat> then you get to see all that is arising. I know I've done extensive meditation, sometimes up to 12 hours a day. And what becomes available to you simply is not available when you are leading the sort of uh, hyper-beta, slightly distracted multitasking type of lifestyles some of many of us have whether we're in an urban environment like that or in even a rural setting the mind itself tends to race now nature of course is a beautiful way of slowing down the mind contemplating beauty whether it's of a tree a flower a bush a plant Animals, lakes, bodies of water. Those of you who listen to A Better World with any regularity know that I recently interviewed Jane Nichols, who wrote the book Blue Mind, marine biologist, <clears throat> who examines from the lens of neuroscience the effect of water on consciousness and literally on the physical brain, how it de-stresses, how it can even promote the release of oxytocin. You know, there's a whole biohormonal profile that can be looked at as well as biochemical, of course. In all that we're speaking about, you could call it neurochemistry. There's a whole other level called neuroelectricity. Now, I'm calling it that. I assume that neurologists and neuroscientists and neuropsychologists have that phrase, but I don't know because I thought that perhaps uh, Richie had neurotypes, but what can I say? These things just tumble forward. But in fact, it makes sense because 
if you go back to uh, Robert O. Becker's beautiful, seminal work, The Body Electric, orthopedist actually, he analyzed way back in the late 70s, uh, mid to late 70s, the role of electricity in the brain. After all, the nervous system is an electrical organ that, needless to say, has a biochemical component. It has water in it. It has glucose. Of course it does. But electricity is its main communicative function, according to what I understand. It's, wow, it's just uh, so wonderful to know a neuroscientist or two who can help to clarify, uh, for me at least, you know, some fundamental understandings I had, have, and assumptions that are clearly buried in there, too, such as what uh, Richie was talking about when I asked about the alpha, theta, and delta states, which is really known as a sleep state. Um, for years, I was playing with uh, a tape that gives you a t- an idea of how long ago it was, an audio tape, a uh, cassette tape that was based on binaural beat creating frequencies in the delta state and what a work it was to remain conscious while everything slowed down and it was (laughs) being awakened absolutely in the middle of the night when you had no cognizance of the physical 3D world. You were in another formless one, vegetative state. And uh, I really had the thought that that was a healthy way of cultivating my own spiritual awakening. And I'm still not going to say it didn't have some kind of interesting effect. And doing same in theta and alpha is a whole lot easier, of course. But what Richard Davidson's work is pointing a finger to is this 40 hertz, a whole different domain beyond beta. And it really does make super sense because it's sort of a widening and an awakening and an expanding into this higher level frequency. And we all know that the entirety of reality Um, material and no doubt otherwise can be really understood through frequency which at the end of the day is a form of electrical charge so wow this has been illuminating for me I hope for you that you could gather some more information and insight into the nature of consciousness which of course is really our game here on the planet Because if we can upgrade the consciousness, if we can upgrade our emotional lives, I'm I'm, I'm stuck on psycho-emotional life because to me, uh, beyond, beyond this notion of enlightenment, which is so delectable and juicy, uh, is emotional maturity. Uh, If we look at our world and want to think about it from a sustainable, harmonious point of view of us, as nature and with nature in respect to in honoring nature in a sacred way uh if we do not preserve 
our nature <laughs> and our planet, then we don't have much to talk about, folks. You know, it's sort of like game over. And many of the intelligent environmentalists are speaking exactly that that language, singing that tune. And uh, it takes emotional maturity in this world as we have it today to recognize that money is not supposed to be a religion. Uh, it's not supposed to be an icon and an idol. It's supposed to be a form of energetic currency for which we may work or we may receive in order to continue our life's work and have some level of security and sustainability along the path. Security, by the way, on a very superficial level, really, because when people ask me what is of greatest value, I surely don't say money when it comes to survival. I say food and water. That's what I say. So uh, that's the game I think we have to play on this planet, and it's really up to us to kind of turn that corner away from the societal programming that has that has um, extolled money and uh, has put it onto a pedestal where I, I would say more holistic thinkers recognize its value proportional to the other domains of our lives. So it's not unimportant in our current society. No, no, no. It has great importance. But does it have importance beyond life itself? That warring and killing and violence being perpetuated and human trafficking and the destruction of our environment, which is our basis of survival, is more important than these? That money would be considered of higher value so that any form of destruction could occur? Oh, certainly not. But in order to really cognize that, to really get it into the depth of heart and soul, we better have done some deprogramming and, as I was referring to, releasing of those peculiar yet inherited societal notions. So this is all part of waking up and having an enlightened mind sort of as a result of many years of, of practice meditative, contemplative practice, uh, or as I have personally been fortunate enough to come across uh, the practice and the program known as Higher Brain Living, that is the brainchild of Dr. Michael Cotton, uh, leads us down another path which can accelerate the high values, the virtuous values, if you will, of meditation which has long proven so valuable and um, so worthy of our attention. So uh, with that said, I want to wrap up today's show. I'm being called from other places and dimensions, and I must respect these. So um, I want to just thank you all for your rapt attention to this dialogue with with Dr. Richard Davidson, who is just one of my all-time fan, uh, 
favorites, and I am a fan of his because he's done some real pioneering pioneering work and continues to, and it's just hats off, and I will be looking to uh, engage him further in dialogue around these subjects of where I feel neuroscience is playing a real seminal role in helping us develop as a species and opening up the potential of what we know of as called through Spiral Dynamics, Claire Graves, Don Beck, Ken Wilbur, et al., Michael Cotton, uh, the sixth epic, and move us all quickly in that direction, distinct from, contradistinct from the other end of the stick known as the sixth extinction, both of which, by the way, are being held in a balance right now, a very delicate balance. You know, one of the books I started writing, I don't want to even say how long ago, probably some 20 years, was Creating a Better World Quickly. And I used to, you know, quip a lot, like, if I don't get that book done, it's going to have to be changed. But the name can't remain the same because it's going to be too late. You know, many of us were on that decades ago. Creating a better world quickly, folks, is something that I think is of great value to us all. So on that note, I want to just encourage you all to please go to uh, abetterworld.tv or abetterworld.net. It's the same thing. Sign up for our free A Better World newsletter every week announcing our shows, the one here on Wednesday nights at 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, as well as 7 o'clock on Monday nights for A Better World TV that you can access from that very same website, and at 9 o'clock on Progressive Radio Network, either through that website, prn.fm, or abetterworld.tv, you can access my show called Progressive Film Hour with Mitchell Rabin, where I interview directors and filmmakers and producers and experts in the field of choice of that particular film, I do a lot around the environment, environmental justice, environmental solutions, of looking at the role of plastics, the way we relate to dirt, one of my favorite movies of all time, um, and looking at social issues such as uh, The Invisible War, uh, which looks at rape in the military and beyond, both of women, of course, and men. Uh, and looks at um, the, all the issues around uh, ego in the military and reportage of one against one's own. It's not really against. It's for justice and for what stands for right, you know. Uh, these are the kinds of films that we've been uh, airing. Water Wars is another one. Very exciting, incredibly important stuff that when people become more and more awake, they become more and more sensitized to the natural habitat, the natural world around us and inside us. And that means nature, folks. That means preserving nature is exactly preserving ourselves. They are one and the same. To be a therapist, to be a healer, to be involved in personal development and personal growth, as we're doing with Higher Brain Living, uh, you will become so open-hearted. It just happens. 
you become so open-hearted and so sensitized to all living forms, all sentient life, which of course also happens when one is on a spiritual path, a wisdom path, that you want to preserve the sacredness of all life. It just happens. You want to treat all life with that kind of reverence and respect. And at certain moments, irreverence. Yes, indeed, that is part of our human game. But at this point in time, we actually need a deep reverence before we can explore its opposite because uh, it's been iconoclastic what we have been doing relative to reverence and our earth. We have been careless and uh, we have just discarded and looked at the earth as a commodity instead of as a living, breathing Gaia, which she is and has given life to us through our mother's womb. You get that? That's one of the contributions I have made to the field of psychology, of moving away from Freud's rather uh, fastidious attention to our what I call local biological mother, to our planetary biological mother. It's an important distinction. So as we need to love our personal mother, so too we need to love our earth mother. So on that note, I want to just thank you all again. Also visit us at A Better World Media on Facebook. Twitter is A Better World Web. It's all exciting. I wish that you continue to join us every week and spread the word. Pass this on to your friends. Grab the link and forward it around so all can partake. Mitchell J. Raven for A Better World. Thanks so much for joining us. I look forward to seeing you all next week.